Duh, I've got some stamps. I'm sorry to burst your weird bubble. Oh, I forgot that it's a musical! Uh, somewhere a bunch of Irish guys are getting shot. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that was angry about something quite different. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Was I to have any say in this as you rifle through my cupboards? Uh, well, you did say in your vows that I could rifle through your cupboards until death do us part. That's true. I was wondering why you insisted on that part, but now it all makes well, you sense. you have such fabulous cupboards. <laughs> I've often thought so. It was part of your dowry. <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. It is time for the recap of Downton Abbey, Series 6, Episode 3, The Car Hughes Wedding. Woo! The Hewson Wedding. <laughs> did we ever come to a decision on that? I don't think we did. I mean, I've been very wishy-washy about portmanteaus here in these interminable final seasons (laughs) of Downton Abbey. You're you're absolutely correct. I guess I guess Houston would be the obvious choice. I like Houston. Yeah, Car Hughes sounds stupid. It does. It sounds like a car. It does sound like a car. Yeah model of hughes <laughs> right i was very proud of myself today because i changed my twitter bio to read owner operator of a 1982 vagina <laughs> going into the election cycle i feel really good about that that's that's not bad anyway uh we're going to lead off with our cousin of the week Ooh. if you would like to reach out to us you can send us a telegram or email at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com you can send us a carrier pigeon or tweet at five Maggie Smiths. That's at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. Or search up yours downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. Also, by this point, you will have realized I sound terrible. <laughs> you sound better than you think you do, but you you are congested. I definitely don't sound like my normal non-congested self. Yeah, there's I think truth. We can in that. all agree. Yeah, there's some snot happening up here. <laughs> there is. Uh, anyway, in so, case you were wondering, hopefully that won't interfere. Uh, and we'll get through this. Yeah, it's a relatively short episode in terms of the amount that goes on. I think because, you know, the wedding at the end takes up a, a decent amount of time. Like, not a ton, but enough to kind of make a difference. Tell me more interesting things about this episode. I would love to, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our cousin of the week this week is Cousin Liz, who writes, Hi, Kelly and Tom. Your podcast is the best, and you seem delightful. Aw. Hmm. So, I think that the home garden is literally the garden for the home. Like, they have a fleet of gardeners looking after the horseradish and potatoes and whatnot for the family. <laughs> That's where Patmore gets her produce, and proximity would make it easy to get in the middle of the day if the cook was short a zucchini. I'm honestly not sure what vegetables can grow in the north of England, or what vegetable can grow anywhere. <laughs> anyway, I thought about this when you mentioned Rosamond shaking her brother down for food, because that would also be the place supplying her. I actually don't know if it's true, but I don't intend on doing any research to find out. <laughs> we Support you. Yes. Also, why shouldn't Rosamond get produce from Downton? It was her home, too. She couldn't inherit even a cottage on the property because ovaries. And she houses and feeds the Crawleys all the time, even though they have a house and staff in London. Unless LG lost it in a shrewd business move that I don't recall. (laughs) Because, oh yeah, LG is unfit to be in charge of a collection of commemorative shot glasses depicting British pig breeds, (laughs) let alone a vast estate. Has Rosamond lost Marmaduke's fortune? No, she has not. She's also been pretty supportive of the younger lady of Downton in her own way, and basically all without panicking. Edith in particular, but Mary when she was an unchaste, Turk-killing vagina, and Rose when she was an adulterous flapper. So give your sister some carrots, LG, and shut your dumb, money-losing, unhelpful-in-all-situations mouth about it. 
She'd be a better Earl than you, sir. Love your show. Have a great week. Cousin Liz. Here, here. Now, luckily, uh, a vast number of cousins <laughs> did do the research on the home farm and posted their uh, thoughts in the open thread on Facebook and yeah. uh, also on Twitter. So if you are curious, yes, it is indeed the farm where the estate grows all of its vegetables. Right. Um, but clearly the cabbages were all entailed in the male line. So, yeah. You know. So anyway, that is what a home farm is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's Cousin of the Week. Thank you. Bazinga. I, look, I'm really going to be uh, struggling here to be funny. We're, we're all going to fight through it. It's going to be great. Uh, so we'll just get right into the recap, which, funnily enough, starts off with a hall boy carrying some vegetables, presumably from the home garden. Uh, we also see Patmore carrying some dough around. Uh, Didn't she call it the home farm, though? Uh, I, I don't. She said the home farm. I don't know. I don't know either. Anyway, the home garden, the home farm. Let's call the whole thing this recap. <laughs> And then Patmore follows Hughes to ask her if she's chosen what she wants. And Hughes says, oh, whatever Patmore thinks best. Patmore says that Hughes doesn't sound on the brink of wedded bliss. And Hughes says she's not on the brink of anything except possibly the grave. So This is not necessarily the attitude you want to have going into your wedding. Yeah. Like, I can understand being stressed out and stuff, but, like, maybe, like, tone it down a little bit. Like, unless you're, like, William, when you're literally on the brink of the grave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but even he was, like, remarkably cheerful. He so was. So I think maybe get your shit together, Mrs. Hughes. Here, here. Hughes says that she wanted a jolly wedding breakfast, but apparently that's not how posh people do it. Patmore doesn't see why they have to do it posh. They could put trestle tables in the hall, but apparently that's not what Carson wants. Hughes says that she doesn't really mind. Eh, incorrect. Yeah. Patmore asks what she'll wear, and Hughes figures her brown day dress. (laughs) Just as she dreamed of as a young girl. (laughs) She says Anna will fix it up. Patmore says that she has a new mail-order dress catalog that she could get something from, but Hughes doesn't think a new dress will save anything much. She shows Patmore the brown day dress, and Patmore's like, well, you're not wasting any money. This reminds me of uh, These Happy Golden Years by Laura Ingalls Wilder, (laughs) because Laura Ingalls Wilder had to get married a lot quicker than she thought, so she had to get married in a black cashmere dress, and her mother was flipping out, yeah, because she was like, you know what they say, married in black, you'll wish yourself back, and I was like, that is crazy. Wow. That is a nutty thing to think. Anyway, she stayed married to her husband for a really long time, but Mm -hmm. I was always bummed for her that she had to like rush into her wedding and like couldn't make a special wedding dress. Yeah. But she was like totally chilled out about it. She's like, oh no, I'll just wear that and this one hat that I have. No, you know, I mean, weddings the, were a way more chill affair back then, though. Yeah, well, I would imagine, especially on the frontier. Well, but that's why they did it because Almanza's parents or his mother and his sister wanted them to have like this huge church wedding, and he was like, "I can't afford that." And I was like, "It seems weird that they want to have this without being the ones paying for it." No, but I'm not privy to the Wilder family's finances. No, you sure aren't. Apart from what's discussed in Farmer Boy. Right. I was going to say, like, you're relatively... Oh, uh, yeah. I know how much a sucking pig costs. (laughs) You sure do. (laughs) (laughs) That was in our vows. (laughs) (laughs) That I'll never buy a sucking pig without consulting you first. Right. Well, not at an unfair price. (laughs) I knew I could count on you to negotiate for any sucking pigs. We had a weird wedding. (laughs) Yeah. 
Lord Grantham enters the library, which I feel like they only shoot in the library now. Yeah, I, I think feel that's... like they didn't always used to be in the library. I feel like, but I also feel like the people who own Highclere Castle got very snitty a while back and like severely limited their access. Yeah, I think that's true. I also feel like there's another room that I occasionally misidentify as the library. Not in this case. I'm sure this one is the library. You mean the small library? I guess that must be it. Because well, then I'm like, is this the drawing room? <laughs> you but mean it the place seem like where it... they sometimes have cocktails? Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't look like the library. Yeah, yeah, that might be it. I don't know what that is. Yeah. It might be the small library. It might, yeah, who knows. Anyway, he asks the Dowager Countess what she's doing there, and she's ensuring that he thinks sensibly, i.e. agreeing with her, in Ray, the hospital. Yeah. Lord Grantham resists her, and the Dowager accuses him of talking to Isabel, and he says he's been talking to McGee. The Dowager attempts to be witty and says that that's a mistake, and she knows several couples who are perfectly happy and haven't spoken in years, which seems like some real, like, regressive, season one level thinking on her part, but also just bad writing. Yeah. Like, these are all just, like, you know, in Baron Julian's Google Doc, Mark (laughs) Dowager quips with a Z. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, well, gotta use them all. Edith comes in and she says she's off to London to deal with her editor again and she'll be staying at her flat. The Dowager asks if that's proper. And Edith says that Adrian Bo- Bolland? Bo- Boland, I Boland flew alone over the Andes four years ago. And anyway, she's staring middle age in the face. Uh, she and Mrs. Hughes should get together <laughs> and have like a cranky middle aged ladies club. Yeah. Uh, a quick note about Adrian Boland. Uh, there wasn't enough to do a whole piece about her, but uh, one fact is that she became a pilot in order to pay off gambling debts. <laughs> How did that work? Uh, it seems like that would cost money to learn how to pilot. I, I didn't get any of the details. I, I could just... see becoming a pilot to outrun your gambling debts. <laughs> wow. She's a regular, the lady version of that person, uh, Sergey, that yes. Rosalie Selfridge married. Okay. Mary comes in and Lord Grantham asks if she, if she's seen McGee. Mary says that she's on her way down, so the dowager goes to leave. Lord Grantham asks her to say hello. And the dowager says that she's going to go because they're going to be seeing and guard. Yeah. And it's like, what? We didn't need yeah. this. It's, no, it's... Yeah, Thanks that for one, telling us a person is coming. Right. And that one, like her saying, we'll be saying on guard was like the worst, like, ugh, just fell flat to me. McGee goes over some menu revisions with Pat Moore and then asks if everything else is all right. And Pat Moore says that she's a bit concerned about the wedding because she feels that Hughes isn't happy. McGee asks if Hughes is regretting her decision and Pat Moore says, no, she's regretting Carson's decision. We see a stranger walking through some grass. Once again, great choice. Uh, Spratt is tending to his stamp collection. Danker danks in and stares at it and says it's silly. (laughs) Spratt says she understands nothing and then goes to answer the back door. Danker danks after him and asks who it was. Spratt splutters and says that the person had come to the wrong house. And Danker says, haven't we all? And, you know... We agree. Yeah. Especially when it comes to Danker. Yeah. We're sorry she ever came to our house. That's right. And that brings us to our first recurring segment, Fashion Backwards, with our very own philately philanthropist, Kelly. Hello. Welcome to something that is both interesting and very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast. The not as ancient hobby, the not as ancient as I thought it was hobby (laughs) of stamp collecting. 
So it should be noted because I'm sure there's somebody out there who's apoplectic right now. <laughs> uh, philately refers to the wider subject of the study of stamps. Okay. Versus stamp collecting, which is just for any, you know, grubby asshole who thinks stamps look cool. Dude, I've got some stamps. <laughs> that appears to be the attitude of this Wikipedia article. Okay. Um, now, in a larger sense, I want to introduce us to the fact uh, that there were two competing... There were two competing names for the study of stamps mm-hmm. uh, in the 1860s when it became very popular to do so. <laughs> and Philately was the winner, <laughs> which makes sense only when you find out that the other one uh, was Timbromania. Uh yeah, which was disliked. See, that would be a better name for a super fan of Justin Timberlake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true, but his moments kind of passed. You yeah. know, he and Jessica Biel had a baby. I assume <laughs> he cheats on her a lot. Like, I'm not sure we're at the heyday of stamp collecting either, but. Well, we're not. Well, but they were. <laughs> right. They were in the night, in the 1860s, mm-hmm. which is what I'm talking about if you'd been paying attention. Well, I sort of Instead was. of thinking about Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I can't help it. So I think what really sank Timbromania uh, was the <laughs> fact that there were actually several versions of it. Oh. And I think that that split the vote. So they were like, you know what? We're just going to call it philately. We know it's stupid, <laughs> but uh, we clearly are too busy studying stamps <laughs> to come up with anything better. Uh, so that was coined by Georges Erpin. Hairpin? Hairpin. In 1864. <laughs> and it comes from the Greek root uh, philo, meaning love, mm-hmm. or, you know, an attraction or affinity for something. But, yeah, you know, yeah. come on. And uh, atelia, meaning exempt from duties and taxes. <laughs> now, this is also stupid. Right. Because... The only reason that made sense to them was that postage replaced having to give cash to a person that you were also expecting to deliver your thing. Right, right. So this explains why I have always wanted to punch the stamp collectors (laughs) in my life in the face. See, and that also, like, that means that philately would also be a good name for a love of smuggling. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe I don't know. It doesn't true. say that there is an alternate article in here, but... Never heard Han Solo mention it. Right? <laughs> anyway, okay. So, just to uh, get philately out of the way before we get <laughs> deep into the world of actual <laughs> stamp collecting. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to read some of this verbatim, just because the semantics of it I find amusing. Absolutely. The origins of philately lie in the observation that in a number of apparently similar stamps, closer examination may reveal differences in the printed design, paper, watermark, color, perforations, and other areas of the stamp. Comparison with the records of postal authorities may or may not show that the variations <laughs> were intentional, which leads to further inquiry as how did the changes could have happened and why. To make things more interesting... <laughs> Thousands of forgeries have been produced over the years, some of them very good, and only a thorough knowledge of philately gives any hope of detecting the fakes. So this is just like, this is what nerds did. There were no nerds 
before stamp collecting. I firmly believe before stamp collecting, if you were a nerd, you had to study like the natural sciences or become a grave robbing doctor. You know, there were all of these really practical things that you could do. Yeah. And these, I mean, apart from like pottery and other things like that, which I'm sure that, but I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, Nerding for the sake of nerdery. Yeah. This is absurd. That's, that's impressive. Um, so, oh God. There are all of these different types of philately. Okay. So you can have a specialization. Well, I would imagine I'm so. not going to go through all of them. <laughs> I'm just going to pull out the funnier ones. The gum, i.e. the sticky on the back of the stamp. There are people who are obsessed with the variations in the sticky on the back of stamps. I did not see that one coming. Nope. You sure didn't, (laughs) because why would anyone care? The method of separation, perforation, or rouletting. All right. Thematic philately, the study of what is depicted on stamps, i.e. birds on stamps, ships, poets, presidents, monarchs. That is a much more collecting-oriented thing. However, yeah. I'm letting you all know. <laughs> Aerophilately uh, specializes in the study of airmail. Ah. Uh, so this is my favorite one, which is Cinderella philately. It is the study of objects that look like stamps, but are not postal stamps. <laughs> I know you're wondering. <laughs> Examples include Easter seals, Christmas seals, propaganda labels, and so forth. Now, to me, that would not be philately. Right. That would be the love uh, or affinity for seals. Those are all seals. Yeah. Or labels. Yeah. Those should not be called philately. I agree. And I, I don't understand also, Cinderella. Yeah, that's also my question. Cinderella, she she was in fact a stamp. Like, I don't know <laughs> what. <laughs> the slipper fit. I don't see what the problem now, is. Now, if you have managed to wade <laughs> through my dripping contempt... <laughs> And you personally would like to take up the study of philately. Here are the tools you will want to find. (laughs) Stamp tongs. Tweezers. They're just tweezers. (laughs) It says it's a specialized form of tweezers, but they're just saying that to get more of your stamp collecting money. Spend that on stamps. Uh, A strong magnifying glass and a perforation gauge to measure the perforation gauge of the stamp. Sure. If you cannot identify a watermark with the naked eye or with your magnifying glass, you may need watermark fluid, which wets the stamp to reveal the mark. Now, this to me, I think, is is a liquid that is similar to acetone mm. in that, like, it is a liquid, but when you put your fingers in it, it does not feel wet. Uh-huh. And there is no wetness to it. It is very creepy. Okay. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> who's ever gotten a uh, shellac manicure removed will back me up on this. It is weird. All right. Uh, you may also want a stamp catalog, a stock book, and a stamp hinge. I don't know what a stamp hinge is. Let's find out. Let's. Small, folded, transparent, rectangular pieces of paper coated with a mild gum. Ah, so they're basically, yeah, they're the the protective plastic, basically, for your stamps. All right. Now that we've covered the larger study of philately, (laughs) 
So stamps were invented in 1837 by Roland Hill, Sir Roland Hill. Well, Pardon me. You I've never been. let somebody who wasn't at least a sir be the postmaster general in Britain. Yeah. So he introduced the post office reforms uh, and, uh, you know, basically regulated postage rates. Uh-huh. And in order to control that, he introduced stamps. Um, the stamp in all caps on stamps.org stamp history. <laughs> uh, so it took until 1840 to be approved. And the very first stamp was known as the penny black because it was a cent. I would imagine. And it featured a, uh, bust or a profile of Queen Victoria. Um, and you had to cut them apart with skizzers. Okay. The first perforated stamps, uh, for all you connoisseurs out there, get your stamp gauge out. Uh, it was not until 1854 that perforation appeared. 1857 in the United States. Oh. Now, you can imagine that stamps spread like what? Like, honestly, if you think about it, how did we never think of this before then? Yeah. I honestly just assumed stamps had always been around, uh-huh. which doesn't make sense. No. Because I've seen all of the Jane Austen movies. Right. They don't got no stamps. They don't. Um, but according to this other website, uh, statejournal.com, uh, All right. It took seven years. Uh, interestingly, it was another seven years before any of the British colonies issued stamps <laughs> of their own. I would put to the statejournal.com, you don't know what the word interestingly stands for. <laughs> um, okay, so stamps are introduced in like the 1840s, and stamp collecting really got hot in the 1860s okay. when the term was uh, right, right. normalized. So, uh, there were some people, according to Wikipedia, also you should know, uh, that this article has issues. <laughs> some people had, uh, criticized people for stamp collecting because it was like juvenile, but then some of those same people went on to be like the authorities on stamp collecting. There's no citation on that, nor naming mm. of names. So, like, <laughs> it's just an old philately legend. It's like, I've been waiting for 80 years to set the record straight on this. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so, you know, as it became very popular, you could buy your stamp albums and stamp-related literature. <laughs> um also possibly the invention of hipsters. <laughs> One of the earliest and most notable stamp collectors was John Edward Gray. Uh, in 1862, he stated that he began to collect postage sta- he began to collect postage stamps shortly after the system was established and before it had become a rage. Oh. Yeah. So step off bandwagoners. <laughs> he was here since the Penny Black, which sounds like a great mashup of Penny Dreadful and Orphan Black. Oh yeah. Um anyway, uh hang on. Famous stamp collectors. Now we're getting into it. There's also a much longer uh, thing on the stamp collecting Wikipedia page about thematic falafel. Mm. Falafely? <laughs> Philately. Yeah. I knew it sounded like something no, delicious. No, yeah, there you go. Man, I sure go for some falafel right now. Um, there are uh, a couple... A couple of different uh, stamp collecting societies, which I'm sure have very intense rivalries. I would imagine. Um... And dwindling membership. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, guys. Famous stamp collectors include uh, George V. Ah. So this is the main, like, Downton connection mm-hmm. in the traditional 
uh, fashion backwards right, right. Tom repeats history vein, although we have pretty much... <laughs> We had no idea the show would last this long. Yeah. We wouldn't have gone so far into the future. Oh, you think your connection is tenuous. Wait till you get to Tom Repeat's history. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So George V um, was a very keen stamp collector. So he started the royal tradition of stamp collecting. Mm-hmm. Um, so he collected stamps in a red book. He passed that down to his son, George VI, who collected stamps, I think, in a green book. Okay. And then Queen Elizabeth II... Uh, she collected them in a blue book. Oh, wow. Uh, so just know your, you know, know your royal stamp collections. Yeah. Does Charles um, have his book color picked out yet? I wonder. I don't know. Yeah. It says nothing about him. Yeah. So, but, um, the Wikipedia article does take pains to note that Queen Elizabeth II is not a serious <laughs> philatelist. 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 God, it's hard to say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it makes me long for the days of Timbromania. <laughs> She's a Timbromaniac. <laughs> Um, she's been collecting stamps since 1952, in case anyone cares. That's a long time. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was also a stamp collector. Ayn Rand. Uh, Freddie Mercury collected stamps as a child, as did John Lennon. I don't think that's interesting. <laughs> I feel, no, I feel, here's what I'll say. I don't, you know, I'm again stamp collecting, but if you're going to do it, then commit. Yeah. And don't like let, you know, the British Postal Museum and Archive be super impressed by what you did as yeah. a child. Don't just go off and become an international rock legend. Like, stick to stamps, buddy. <laughs> That's not what I mean. <laughs> I Had he become an international rock legend and maintained his stamp collection, that's oh, yeah. when he, look, there is some other guy sure. named, you know, Freddie Thompson, <laughs> and he's been maintaining his stamp collection. For, like, that's the stamp, say it was Freddie Mercury's. I doubt <laughs> Freddie Thompson will care. And Freddie Mercury's not around to uh, object anymore. Yeah, that's sadly. true. Oh, man. I keep forgetting that David Bowie died. Yeah, I'm sorry. And we made a bunch of David Bowie references on the last yeah, podcast. Yeah. It's like we knew. <laughs> it's not. He, he had a new album out. Uh, anyway, John Lennon, also a childhood stamp collector. Who cares? Yeah. Like, he also was in The Beatles. <laughs> yeah. So. Possibly more relevant. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were a bunch of, like, older people that did, but nobody really cares. Uh, um, my, my, my grandpa. The phrase, stamps. a close rival is used about rival stamp collectors. <laughs> so anyway, okay. Yeah. I don't think my grandpa had any close rivals. So that sprat part of a long interesting and stupid tradition <laughs> of stamp collecting yes and that's fashion backwards well thank you you're welcome thank you for why we thank ourselves di- diving into that world for all of us yeah you know i could have gone deeper but i chose not to yeah no i think that was plenty so we see anna dressing mary and mary can't figure out why edith doesn't just sack her editor it's very hard to hi- uh, fire people yeah, I don't yeah. know that it would be more or less hard back then, but I mean, it's still. I mean, you know, like look at how the Dowager never wants to train up a new ladies' maid. Mm. Got to figure it's a similar deal. I'm going to be a ladies' maid, <laughs> ladies' maid in the Dower House. Uh, she's also had a qu- in the Dower House. It's better, I am told. She's also had a, quote, sad letter from Branson, which apparently reads, you know, last night I dreamt of Downton again. 
Um, well, uh, he should read Brideshead Revisited. Oh, Brideshead Revisited hasn't been. God, do you think Britain would have been different if Brideshead Revisited had been written earlier? I don't see well, how it could have been. <laughs> yeah, that seems but you like know what I mean. Just eerily prescient. Yeah, kind of like a Man in the High Castle situation, <laughs> except that it wouldn't be a sucky TV show that Amazon pretends <laughs> is great. Kelly has strong feelings. That show was awful. <laughs> I don't know why we kept watching it, but we couldn't stop. I think it was because Frank was attractive. <laughs> May have been a factor. And Rufus Sewell is good. Yeah, Rufus Sewell. We support it him. It had good parts to it. It yeah. just was stupid. Yeah, agreed. Not? No. I would rather collect stamps than watch that show again. <laughs> Fair enough. Strong words. Yeah. So Mary's like, oh yeah, that's a very sad letter. I owe him a letter. Well, I'll reply after Carson's wedding. So she's clearly feeling worked up about this. Uh, Anna says that she's sorry for Hughes. She wasn't able to do much with the brown day dress, surprisingly. Uh, but she thinks that maybe Patmore has some kind of a plan. It probably goes, (laughs) 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 Mary asks about the doctor's visit and apparently Anna might be pregnant already. (gasps) Mary says that Bates is sure doing his part. Ew! Yeah. Gross! Yeah, even Anna kind of thinks so. I don't like thinking about that. I don't like it either. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, Mary asks if Anna should be working. And she doesn't want Bates to know anything yet because they have a super healthy relationship. Uh, Mary's super excited, but Anna doesn't want to be excited yet. Um, question. Should you be working? Yes, she's poor. Yeah. Like, it's not, like, is there a maternity leave policy that was instituted recently? <laughs> like, she has to work until, like, it is, you know, time for the baby to come. Right. Like, yeah. And unless there's a baby partway out of you, I believe you're expected to be yeah. in the job. Thomas is reading the paper and Andy asks if he's still looking for another place. Baxter says that he hasn't been fired yet, but Thomas says that Carson's just hoping he'll resign. He reads a listing that says experienced manservant required for a position of trust in a prominent household. Oh, sorry. This is, uh, this is, uh, the personals. (laughs) Daisy asks where and he says he's only looking in Yorkshire and Bates says people will think he has feelings for Yorkshire. And why he's yeah. worked there long? Maybe he just likes it. Yeah, like he can hate everybody there, but still enjoy the countryside, yeah, like man. and whatever. The heather, yeah, the wuthering. How everything's so wick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you made a big mistake. <laughs> oh, I forgot that it's a musical. When it thinks it and <laughs> someone it. cares about it, <laughs> and comes to work each day like you and me. I just think of it as a Hallmark classic movie. Incorrect. <laughs> I think of it as a musical first. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> At dinner, Isabella asks if she's been invited to cement her alliance with McGee. McGee says no, uh, somewhat unconvincingly, and asks Carson to ask Hughes to join them at the table. Everybody is confused. Uh, they go through, oh, so to join them in the drawing room. Uh, and Isabel asks if the Dowager knows that she, Isabel, is there, uh, because she doesn't want the Dowager to think that she is plotting against her. Uh, but everybody's thought that Isabel is plotting against the Dowager for weeks now. And she so... never was plotting. She was very clear. She's like, yes, I'm going to try to convince everyone. Like, right. Yeah. It's this is, not yeah. like the battle lines haven't, why is anybody trying to convince those three randos is my question. That's a very good question. And who are apparently in a position to fire all of them, it gets said at some point. Well, then what? Anyway. Village politics. <laughs> who needs them? <laughs> 
In the kitchen, Daisy has decided that McGee will help Mr. Mason. Molesley says, let's hope so, and asks to take her through some exams. Carson shoes him back to work, as he should, yeah. and uh, fetches Mrs. Hughes. Mrs. Hughes comes into the drawing room. McGee apologizes for putting her on the spot, but she thinks she's been railroaded and doesn't want to have the wedding there. Mary asks why not, and Carson says that they're both honored, but McGee cuts him off to hear from Hughes. Mrs. Hughes says she doesn't wish to sound ungrateful, and it would be an honor to have the wedding at Downton, but to start, she'd like a different kind of reception. Mary, woman of the people, asks, but does anyone have a sit-down wedding anymore? Which, good lord, Mary. She just expects that Mrs. Hughes swans into London every couple of weeks like she does. Read the gossip column. Is this how things were when you were presented at court, Mrs. Hughes? (laughs) Mrs. Hughes goes on to describe her plans, which aren't suitable for the Great Hall. Mary asks... If Carson deserves a wedding in the house, and Mrs. Hughes says it's their day, and it's about them and not the house. Uh, McGee says she understands, and Isabel hopes that they're still invited, and Mrs. Hughes says, of course, because that's not awkward. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham asks To be fair, I invited my boss to our wedding. Yeah, but you don't also live in the same house. Yeah, and it wasn't my boss's cousin. No, it wasn't your boss's cousin. Anyway. Anyway. Moving on. You could have invited some strange relative of his, but you didn't. Yeah. Lord Grantham wants to know if she knows where she wants to have it. She's still sold on the schoolhouse. Carson says that he doesn't mind, and McGee says that it seems to be settled and thanks her. They leave, and Mary asks why they have to listen to them. And McGee says that she wants her to stop bullying them. Here, here. Mary says that she thinks McGee is a snob, and McGee laughs because this is like reverse snob. Yeah. Like, like, that is the least snobbish thing McGee has ever done. This And this from the woman who just said, does anyone have a sit-down wedding anymore? Also, Mary's been proud of being the biggest snob <laughs> in this family for years. Yeah. Mary says McGee just didn't want the bother of having the wedding there, and Lord Grantham starts to defend her, but then Carson returns, and they all shut up. <laughs> uh, also, why should McGee have the bother of having the wedding there? Yeah. Like, they are not that's what the money's for. <laughs> I'm not saying it's enough money or no. that they have all the rights that they should, but like God. Yeah. Like you're not actually related. Here, here. At the Dower House, Spratt tries to sneak out, but Danker sees him and he says that he just needs a breath of air. Uh then Danker goes to the Dowager who wants hot chocolate, and then uh Danker, in her usual subtle way, says that Spratt seems preoccupied. The Dowager asks, does this spring from concern for his welfare? And Dinker says that perhaps a friend of his is in trouble. The Dowager says that she doesn't know anything about his friends, just that he has relations that get married and buried with numbing regularity, usually on inconvenient days. <laughs> All right, that's pretty solid. That, yeah, that's not bad. Uh, and suggests that Dinker just asks Spratt herself. And also, why would Danker think that the Dowager and Spratt confide in one another? I know. The Dowager has a very old school approach to her servants. She's not going to let anything slide. Yeah. Like that she doesn't like want them to know, which I guess kind of begs the question as to why she said anything to Danker about the layoffs. Well, but I think that's the thing. Which so far, by the way, appear to only be affecting Thomas. Right. Literally no one else has been kind of fired. Yeah. And him only indirectly in that it's not like they've actually laid anybody off. Also... Well, I was just going to say, like, I can see how the Dowager is like, well, I can talk to my lady's maid because that's the one person you talk to, you know? Yeah. Um, but Dinker just, just... But why would you talk to your butler? Right. 
Right. And just the fact that Denker continues to have no idea who she works for, apparently. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. At night, Carson stops Lord Grantham and says, Thomas is applying for a job at Dryden Park. Lord Grantham hasn't heard about it for years, then grunts and claims to have a bit of indigestion. He leaves and Mary comes by and hopes that Carson wasn't upset. Uh, he wasn't, and he doesn't think that McGee was snobbish. Mary is just annoyed to see Carson cheated of his just desserts, and Carson says if Mary attends the wedding, that's enough for him because he isn't a monster unlike you, Mary. <laughs> right. Matthew really did make her a lot more bearable. Yeah. Like, I know we were happy when she returned to being Mary the bitch. Right. But now she's just, like, gone too far. Yeah, she's, like, this is not a good look for her in this episode. No. Uh, We see Thomas walking up to a much larger manor than last time. He rings the bell, and some old guy answers and invites him in. And we see Edith walking by some bookstore in a city street. And Bertie sees her and flags her down. Edith doesn't recognize him at first and then apologizes. He is still the agent at uh, Brancaster, whatever that castle was, and he's in London on business. Edith says this is the longest she's been in London since Rose came out. And Bertie remembers Rose and says that he told Lord Hexham to try and rent to them again the next summer. He asks if she's having a good time in London. She says she's been working and missing Marigold, her ward. <laughs> She says she's having problems with the magazine she owns. She doesn't know if he remembers that she owns a magazine, and he does, and he remembers being impressed that she owned a magazine. He asks if she would like to have a drink later, and she suggests rules, so he agrees and leaves before she changes her mind. I just had this wonderful thought of, like, a crossover episode of Downton and the Simpsons that's like Homer's enemy, where there's some guy... (laughs) Like Frank Grimes, <laughs> who hates Lord Grantham because he's an idiot and he gets everything. Yeah. And he's like, your daughter owns a magazine. <laughs> Even your kitchen maid owns a farm. <laughs> no, because it's the same fucking thing. It is. It's exa- he's got a beautiful wife, wonderful children, one of whom is dead, granted. Yeah. Um, your pigs always win first prize. <laughs> Really, Mr. Drew should be that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's for true. For God's sake. Yeah. Except he's apparently gone forever. No mention of the pigs, the pig farmer in this, or is there? Uh, I don't think so. All right, we're going to say no, and yeah. then we're wrong. That'll be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Sir Michael Raresby? Raresby? I think just Raresby. I'm going to call him Rarebit. Okay. Rarebit introduces himself to Thomas as they walk through a bunch of empty but kind of well-appointed rooms. Yeah. Michael says, I'm sorry, Rarebit, yes. says it's been hard since his wife died. She was lady-in-waiting to the old Duchess of Connaught. 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 And his two sons. It's a uh, part of Ireland. I know how Irish things are spelled. <laughs> I knew it was Irish. I just didn't know how to uh, pronounce uh, it. That's fair. Slot. Uh, his two sons never came back from the war, so they're dead or they're they just, just living it him. up in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, screw old Rarebit. Rarebit asks if Thomas serves and... If Thomas served and he shows him his blighty, which is uh, in effect today, mm-hmm. uh, Rarebit approves that Thomas wasn't a dirty, shirking coward, <laughs> and they walk into another mostly empty room. Thomas says it must have been good for entertaining. Michael agrees and reminisces about the women going up to bed. I I think we're supposed to be feeling something here because it's like this very wistful. we're very against the aristocracy, so we're like, dude, you should just pack it up. Like, yeah, you don't need this house. Yeah, like that's a nice house. Why don't you sell up and get a place you can, you know, live in? Yeah. 
The next room just has books and papers everywhere, and Thomas clears a stake. A stake? <laughs> clears a space and asks how many staff they have. Just a three-day-a-week charwoman and occasional man outside. Michael ins- Rarebit <laughs> insists that it is a prominent household. They've entertained the five princesses, princesses <laughs> the Duke of Argyll, the Queen of Spain, and Thomas says that was a while ago. And then Rarebit suddenly accuses him of being a Republican. <laughs> Thomas says, uh, maybe he is a Republican. I'm about. <laughs> Michael Rarebit... <laughs> <laughs> says when the good times return they'll all come back <laughs> you all still have <laughs> thomas is like good luck with that i'm outie yeah so it's like supposed to be this whole like sunset boulevard thing i guess but it doesn't feel like much of anything yeah we just got rare bit out of it yeah which for those of you who don't know is a grilled cheese <laughs> oh. hey. but fancier yeah more expensive anyway yeah well it's rare <laughs> So we see Edith reviewing the magazine cover with her editor, who I have named Tubby McFlopsweat. <laughs> I almost did a spit take. <laughs> and I read this previously. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, yeah, this, this guy is just hilarious to look at and listen to. Anyway, she says that it isn't really finished, and then Tubby starts off on another rant, but Edith cuts him off and says that they simply can't work together. And um, we see an employee overhearing this and smiling. Yeah, this has to be irritating to listen to on a daily basis. Yeah. So Tubby storms out, and the employee walks in and says, good riddance, but what now? Edith says they have to get the magazine out by tomorrow, so the proofs have to get to the printers by 4 a.m., and she'll do it herself rather than be defeated by a petulant, overweight tyrant. So they've got nine hours, they'd better get the coffee on, uh, and then Edith, looking at the clock, suddenly remembers Bertie and says that she will be right back. Edith goes up to Bertie and rules and apologizes because this is before cell phones. <laughs> Although she could have telephoned rules. I suppose so, but this is more polite. She says that if he knew the deal, he'd forgive her. Uh, she can't have the drink and explains why. Bertie's like, okay, I'll come help. I'll make coffee and fetch sandwiches, carry bits of paper. Yeah. Uh, Edith asks if he has dinner plans because she thought that was why he didn't ask her to dinner. But he said that he didn't think she'd accept him, so he'd planned a bit of a bait and switch. Yeah. Oh, Trixie old birdie. That is a clever one, that one. Mm-hmm. Daisy and Moseley are going over the exams and discussing a question about the wars of the Spanish succession and the Austrian succession, and Moseley seems pensive, uh, and he ill-advisedly reveals that he overheard that pig farm might be coming available. He tells Daisy not to jump the gun, but she's like, I jumped the gun an hour ago. Yeah. Like, I'm so far past the She's gun like, now. Ruth Buzzy better watch her back. <laughs> Which brings us to the second of our recurring segments. Tom repeats history with our resident succession savant, Tom. Hi. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. You have not been here this whole time nope. that we've been recording. I just walked in, sat down. I'm adjusting myself. Good for you. Yeah, get the, old, my get the old buttocks. Coffee moving. mug on the host desk. Yes, good job. Yeah, so the wars of the Spanish succession and the Austrian succession. That is a tenuous link. Yeah, it is. Uh, so real quick on the Spanish one. So basically what happened there was uh, Charles II, also known as Carlos the Sufferer, was king of Spain. He was the Habsburg king Boy, of Spain. What a bummer name. Yeah. Well, you remember that 30 Rock they episode? Call him the bummer king. <laughs> oh, with Pee Wee Herman? With Pee Wee Herman? Yeah. As the last of the Habsburgs. This was like the real life that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he could not metabolize the grapes. He could not. Nor could he beget an heir to the throne. Pretty so, much your only job. Yeah. So when he died, the throne passed to uh, Philip, who was the grandson of Louis XIV of France. 
and therefore was also the heir to the throne of France. Oh, Billy. Yeah. So basically what happened was every other country in Europe was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and Louis XIV was like, all right, I'll take all of y'all on. And he did okay. Like basically he- I mean, France still exists. Yeah, it sure does. Um, and he did pretty well. They he started really to start losing militarily, but unfortunately, all the at that point the alliance kind of broke down. The Tories kind of came to power in England and wanted to stop the war, so it looked like France was going to get completely defeated. But the Allies lost their will, and they wound up coming to a negotiated settlement, which basically wound up that Philip got to stay the King of Spain, but was prohibited from succeeding to the throne of France. Uh, and the main thing that that uh, is relevant towards the War of the Austrian Succession, which was a few decades later, was that prior to this point, Spain and Austria had both been ruled by the Habsburgs, just different branches of the same line. And so they generally followed the same policy just in general throughout Europe. Uh, and in particular, they both had interests all through Italy, which as long as both of them were ruled by the same family, it didn't really matter that much which Habsburg controlled which part of Italy – but then uh, when the Bourbons took over the throne of Spain, that became more of a, a stressed-out issue. So the War of the Austrian Succession is a kind of loose name for just a whole clusterfuck that went down for like 10 years in the 1740s, I believe. Uh, it actually kind of started with the War of Jenkins' Ear. What? <laughs> yes. Uh, this was That's a- more absurd than stamp collecting. That's more absurd than <laughs> philately. Right. This was a war between Britain and Spain, which was over the fact that Britain, from a previous war, I believe the War of the Spanish Succession, had gotten the right to uh, import slaves into Spanish America, uh, but was also generally testy and had a bad relationship with Spain because they were always jockeying for different colonies. So Spain would, like, stop their ships to see if they were illegally importing other goods rather than legally importing slaves. Uh, At one point, there was a confrontation on a brig, and a Captain Jenkins got his ear cut off, uh, and that's what the war wound up being named after. Although it's worth noting that that name didn't come along until like 100 years later, but it's such a good name that everybody's like, oh, we're keeping that. Um, So then shortly thereafter, uh, there was a death of whoever was in charge of Austria, and the throne passed to Maria Theresa. But this is a problem because there was Salic law in effect, which those of you who remember Henry V will recall means that only men can succeed and not women. Now, they had previously like made some arrangement that it was going to be okay that Maria Theresa would take over, but Prussia decided to ignore that just to try and take over some land. Germany and Italy did not exist at this time, and they were just a giant overlapping collection of principalities and electorates and states and duchies and whatever, all of whom tended to be kind of half-owned by other things. Like, for example, one of them was Hanover, which George II of Britain was then still the Duke of. So, you know, there's this part as, you know technically part of britain and this part is part of prussia and the holy roman empire still sort of exists and all of them are sort of part of it but sort of not and that's not even getting into italy so basically as soon as anybody did anything in the middle part of europe everybody went to war and this was repeated like it started with a 30 years war 100 years earlier and would continue basically up until napoleonic times like there'd be a few decades off every once in a while and then somebody would knock over a domino in the middle of europe and everybody would go to war so that's what happened here 
Prussia brought in France and Spain on its side, which basically meant that England brought, came in because at this point England's strategy was to any time a war broke out, find whichever side France was on and join the other side <laughs> <laughs> because they were competing both in North America and in India for colonies. And of course, England also owning Hanover, George II was technically fighting for Hanover for part of this rather than for England because he was also their king. So it was just a huge mess all over the world from, you know, Canada, like there were Massachusetts militiamen fighting in Canada. There was all sorts of the War of Jenkins' Ears was a huge just the English being idiots all around the Caribbean and dying of yellow fever and ill-advised expeditions. There was a big fight in India that the French won, but that the English learned lessons from that eventually enabled them to take India down the road. There was like, it was just ridiculous. Like Russia was involved on Austria's side, but then had to pull out for a while because they found out that there was a coup threatened against the Tsarina that was ruling Russia at the time. A coup which had been plotted by the Austrian minister to Russia, which, you know, tangled their relationships for a bit. Uh, and one more thing happened during this time that I thought might interest you. Uh, the French decided to send uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the pretender to the throne of England, into Scotland for the Jacobite uprisings. <gasps> From Outlander! From Outlander, yes. So that's how she got involved in the War of the Austrian Succession. <laughs> she sure probably did. Yeah, because he'd been hanging out ever since his grandfather got kicked off the throne like 70 years ago, but the people in Scotland still liked him. Well, it was Catholic. He was Catholic, yeah. That was that was their main thing. So after all this... Caths before Bath. <laughs> I don't know. No, that, that was a good try. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Catholic doesn't really rhyme with much. Yeah, it was basically like, okay, go invade England and we'll send you reinforcements. And he was like, okay, I'm doing great. Where's the reinforcements? And they were like, did we say reinforcements? Because we meant we thought you could just deal with it. That is like every work challenge that I face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after all of this, basically nothing changed. Maria Theresa still got to be in charge of Austria. Prussia did keep Silesia, and this did end up – It was this was the point at which Austria and Prussia became the two sort of nucleuses that Germany and Austria eventually coalesced into the modern states from. Uh, Spain got some influence back in Italy. France had done pretty well. It conquered a bunch of uh, Belgium, present-day Belgium, which at the time was part of Austria, and even beaten some of present-day the Netherlands at that time. But then the f- king of the French just kind of gave everything back uh, because he said he was a, a king and not a merchant. And this pissed the French people off no end. And there's actually, apparently, it is still to this day a phrase in France, an idiom, to work for the king of Prussia, meaning to work for nothing, from that time when he basically gave back to Prussia all the things that they had won in the war. And none of this settled everything, and a decade later, the Seven Years' War breaks out, which is what we know in America as the French and Indian War, which basically had all the same people on all the same sides and refought all the same battles. This is what I find interesting because everybody's like, oh, like World War One and World War Two, like all the. But I mean, this has been happening forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only difference in World War One and World War Two is that we just got like way better at, better at killing people, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, in a short period of time. Yeah, just the technology advanced. Uh-huh. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. My point is, you know, war, man, war. Yeah, here, here, because, and this can all be traced back to, you know, that like this came out of the Spanish succession that didn't settle anything that came from, um, I feel like there's something between us, but the 30 years war that didn't really settle anything and, and just on throughout most of European history has just been a so bunch wait, of when wars. Did, when did the Austrian war of succession end? It ended, it ended 
I want to say like 1750 something. They could have been spending that time developing stamps. <laughs> they didn't do it. Could have invented stamps. <laughs> That's true. They could they had the technology. A full, almost century before. Yeah. That would have shown everybody. God, I do. I mean, I don't really believe in aliens. <laughs> I don't. Not in that. You know what no, I mean? No, no, I know what you mean. I don't uh, discount the possibility of there being life forms that right. are intelligent in other galaxies. But we seem pretty far out here. Yeah. As far as that's considered. But like, man, if they ever did show up, they would be like, y'all are stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, this is this shit pile is what you've been fighting over (laughs) the whole time yeah and that's what you don't even you don't even know how to like you know do interplanetary travel like what is wrong with you where (laughs) are your priorities and that's what i go back and look at these things like oh prussia wanted to take over silesia and it's like well why yeah who even heard of silesia i mean i guess prussia did (laughs) well they're also (laughs) called prussia right which we only know about because it later became germany yeah Silesia ain't shit. No. Sorry to any Silesians in our listenership. It sounds like a Doctor Who alien, though. <laughs> it does, actually. Anyway, uh, well, thank you, Tom. You're that welcome. That was enlightening, as per usual. <laughs> back at the Dower House, the back doorbell rings, and it's Sarge, who commonly is known as Officer Bummer? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've I been calling like, him Sarge because <laughs> that's easier to type, but well, I... Well, somebody yeah. wrote in and said he needs to be called Officer Bummer. Okay. And I was like, didn't we call him that? No, you're right. What day is this? Anyway, well, I'll do a, I'll I do can... a search and replace for any future recaps. Uh, Officer Bummer and Danker in the same plot line. Oh. It's like Julian Fellows got our letter of things we never wanted <laughs> to see. <laughs> so he says he has an inquiry... I'm sorry, an inquiry right. regarding Spratt uh, about his nephew who's been in York prison. Spratt asks if Danker needs to be there. Uh, but Officer Bummer says he'll be asking her questions next so there's no point, which I don't know the basic tenets of British <laughs> common law. But right. I'm pretty sure that if the man wants to speak to you privately, he has that right. Well, yeah, well, beyond that, do you not understand how interrogations work? Like, you interrogate no, people did. separately. Did like, we ever look that? That would be a good yeah. thing to look up and be like, what is, like, the way that interrogations develop? Because, no, when any anytime he would come to Downton, they'd be like, well, can Mrs. Hughes be here? Yeah. But it's like, she doesn't... <laughs> sure, everybody gather around. For an interrogation. <laughs> Spratt's nephew is on the lamp. Mm. And somebody of his description has been in the neighborhood. Spratt says that uh, the nephew has not contacted him, and Danker backs him up. The officer bummer leaves, and then Danker says Spratt has an interesting family and asks Spratt if his nephew got away safely after Spratt put him up in the potting shed. Ho, ho. So I guess he was that stranger that we saw walking, yeah. never to be seen again. Yeah. So again, thanks for wasting those 10 seconds on an mm. establishing shot that has no bearing on the action. <laughs> Oh, at the magazine. Guess what? It's a good old-fashioned getting it done montage. Makeover, 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 makeover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Edith is debating how to report Lady Eltham's costume ball. and With a mask. (laughs) And Bertie gives her some advice. Uh, So photos are arranged and papers are carried around and the clock ticks. Bertie carries coffee, and then Edith gives the proofs to a delivery, a delivery boy at 3.40. Uh, mission accomplished. So Edith thanks Bertie, and he asks if she's an editor now. Edith doesn't know, but it's nice to know that she can handle it. It is nice to know that. Yeah. Uh, she says that she'll put a caretaker in charge, and uh, she uh, thanks him. 
Bertie asks if she's a countrywoman or a townie. Edith says she doesn't know, but she has learned that she needs a purpose. Well, they don't have those in the country. They don't. <laughs> Unless your purpose is pigs. <laughs> That sounds like a good <laughs> memoir. The purpose was <laughs> <of those> pigs. <laughs> I know their ways. <laughs> Bertie says that Edith inspires him and they uh, have a moment. <laughs> and then Audrey brings more coffee. That is the employee whose name we just learned. I like to think that her intern Holland was like, he said he would get the coffee. <laughs> Mm, sandwiches sound really good right now <laughs> yeah also they could lay off the coffee at this point i would recommend it but uh you know it's just yeah, they need something to do so they can hang out longer ah, fair i enough. used to do that in high school and then stay up all night being terrified by the lyrics to jekyll and hyde <laughs> no, i was that... a weird kid yeah, yeah. no I, I was like yeah i believe it Bertie says that he's going to catch the 12 o'clock train and try to sleep there like in the morning I don't know. Where's what, it going to stay in the meantime? That's I, a long time to wait. Yeah, that's eight hours. Although still. I guess presumably he has lodgings. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know why. I'm <laughs> he's just been wandering. carrying his bindle around London. <laughs> uh, Edith mentions Carson's marriage and Bertie loves those stories. You mean improbable stories about people in service getting <laughs> married? Yeah. Uh, and also the fact that he'd been in service for, you know, a bil- bajillion years or whatever. And he wonders how much longer people will tell them. Well, you know, a full fucking six seasons of this show, I can tell you that. (laughs) So at least until 2016. (laughs) Yeah. In the kitchen, Carson gives Mrs. Patmore a package and she won't say what it is. Once he leaves, Mrs. Patmore says she's glad and tells Anna and Daisy what it is. Unfortunately, it is a sad puce. Like or lavender maybe but that's really overselling how colorful this yeah. dress is yeah um anna says it's an improvement over the brown day dress and daisy it's the color of like a dystopia that's <laughs> what color this dress it's is it's the color of aunt beast in <laughs> <time>. yeah <laughs> who are you wearing aunt beast <laughs> Daisy can't believe the dress, uh, which is saying something, <laughs> because that girl has a terrible fashion sense. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Patmore says it looked nice in the picture, and Anna says that it's the thought that counts. Mrs. Patmore correctly <laughs> tells her, not with a frock. <laughs> yeah. Anna says that Mary will lend a brooch, uh, but Patmore says it'll need a diamond parier? Par- parure, parure, I believe. And that is a set of jewelry, a matching set, so like necklace, earrings, uh, okay. etc. What people loan out for the Oscars. Yes. Mrs. Hughes comes in to ask. I always forget, though, that Mrs. Patmore knows French. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know? Right. Because she had to. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes comes in to ask Daisy to do the fires because Gertie is ill. <laughs> I don't... Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, Baron Fellows. Yeah, get it together, Gertie. Uh, I just mean I don't think there is a Gertie. Oh, right. Uh, so they all hide the dress. Sure. And in McGee's room, she's apologizing for getting Baxter up early. That's Baxter's job, right. is to get up early. Uh, and but, it's McGee's job to insincerely apologize. Okay, fine. <laughs> McGee is going to York to see the hospital, and on her way out, uh, she runs into Daisy. And uh, McGee asks why Daisy is, you know, where humans can see her. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy explains about Gertie, <laughs> and she says she's grateful for the pig farm plan. And Mrs. Hughes is like, hey, get Get, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, she's brushing, at, brushing at her with a broom. <laughs> and McGee is concerned by Daisy's optimism, but no. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Nothing good, McGee. 
In Mary's room, Anna describes the dress debacle, uh, and Mary asks if they can lend her a dress. Anna says that Mrs. Hughes wouldn't fit into Mary's dresses, and McGee is too tall, which isn't, isn't Mary taller than McGee? Like, I, I always felt like she so, was. But McGee slumps. Yeah, her that's true. Her shoulders are always slumpy. That's a good point. We'll have to keep an eye out for it. We should just look up how tall the actresses are. That sounds less fun. I'm sorry to <laughs> burst your weird bubble. <laughs> Mary suggests that they use one of McGee's embroidered evening coats and says that she'll ask her, but Anna reminds her that McGee is gone for the day. And Mary says that they'll manage without her and McGee won't mind. In Mrs. Hughes' parlor, Carson asks if everything's ready and Mrs. Hughes thinks so. Carson asks if she's nervous and she says a little and wishes that she'd made more of an effort on her dress. And Carson says that they mustn't see each other before the wedding. Uh, and Mrs. Hughes has a plan. Yeah, they're just like, oh, they'll warn each other, blah, blah, blah. In Clarkson's office, the Dowager accuses McGee of betraying them to the enemy. McGee says that the York has, that the York Hospital is not her enemy. They gave her a tour and a luncheon. The Dowager calls that betrayal, but Isabel calls it being in possession of the facts. Clarkson says it's unfortunate if McGee has given the hospital the impression that they approve of the plan, but McGee says that she does approve. Clarkson is still disappointed in her. Isabel says that Clarkson sees this arrangement as diminishing his importance. Which, honestly, is the only logical reason for his opposition. Yeah, agreed. Murdy says that Isabel doesn't mean that, and Clarkson disagrees, because she clearly does. The Dowager asks if Isabel was drinking at luncheon, <laughs> and Isabel points out that they were together during lunch. <laughs> I love it when they fight. Yeah, and the Dowager says, not all the time. <laughs> Murdy suggests they call a halt, and McGee says that she's going and hopes that they manage things in a more civilized manner. In the servants' hall, Carson asks if tea has gone up, and Mrs. Patmore says, Not yet, oh great one. Oh, which is a bit much. Yeah, like it's kind of his job, it's just checking. Carson asks Thomas about the uh, job, and Thomas says it wasn't a good fit for him. Thomas says it won't be long now, uh, I guess, until he gets fired or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, Andy, who is there also in the room, uh, says that something will turn up. He's been in fewer rooms. That's true. This episode. That's true. Uh, Thomas says Andy will be glad to see the back of him. And Andy says, if that's what you want, Baxter says not to fish when they won't bite. And I'm like, what are you talking about, woman? I don't know. Thomas says, you do a really good <laughs> Thank you. Thomas says that they've got him all wrong. All he wants is friendship, but they've all poisoned Andy's mind against him. And I'm like, you're also a terrible person. <laughs> Baxter says to tell Andy, but Thomas says the damage has been done and Baxter doesn't believe him anyway. So that was a great conversation that we sat through of Baxter failing to convince Thomas that not everyone hates him. Right. When everyone hates him. Yeah. Baxter, not super effective. Anna asks Hughes to pop up to McGee's room because Mary has a surprise for her. And Hughes is like, what could it be about? And Anna's like, well, you are getting married tomorrow. Might be related. And so they agree that they will meet there at five. Uh, in library, in the library, Lord Grantham greets the famous editor, Edith. And uh, she shows him the mock-up. And Mary looks on quite bitchily. Like, is, like Lord Grantham. And she's like, oh, magazine. I could do a magazine if I wanted to. <laughs> Uh, McGee looks in just to say that she's changing. Lord Grantham asks about her day, and she says that the afternoon was ghastly. Ghastly. <laughs> there you go. Ghastly. <laughs> uh, That's my McGee mix. <laughs> <laughs> ghastly luncheon. Yeah. Uh, 
Mary, too late, says, oh, mama, you'll find. And then she's like, oh, whatever. In McGee's room, Mrs. Hughes is trying on a dress as Mrs. Patmore and Anna look on and advise. And McGee comes in and asks what's going on. I think it's actually a fur. I think you're right. Because they're, they're strictly going with evening coats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. already agreed that yeah. she wouldn't fit in the dresses. Right, right. McGee comes in and asks what's going on. And Anna asks if Mary told her about the plan. McGee asks if she was to have any say in it. And Mrs. Hughes apologizes immediately. But McGee says she's surprised at her in a very bitchy tone. Yeah. And Mrs. Hughes says they'll hang up and go. And Anna says Lady Mary. But McGee says that Mary can do what she wants with her own clothes, but has no right to dispose of McGee's. Whoa. Yeah. Like... We have not seen this side of McGee in quite a while. Yeah, yeah. It's been, I think, since the hospital and her clashes with Isabel. Yeah, yeah. It was, like, it was rough. Yeah. For his, And you could see Hughes, too, just, like, felt awful about it. Yeah. Mary walks into her room and greets Anna, who explains what just happened and says she's never seen McGee so angry, so Mary says to leave it to her. So in McGee's room, Mary knocks and enters, and she says that Anna seems to think that McGee didn't want to lend Hughes a coat and that she hopes that McGee wasn't rude. Lord Grantham, who was also there, says that McGee had a horrible afternoon, and Mary says that that's no excuse. And she tried to tell McGee what was going on, but McGee stormed off. Which, which is, McGee did not storm yeah, off. Yeah. In the servants' hall, Carson wonders what Mrs. Hughes was even doing in McGee's room, because he's even stupider than Mrs. Hughes. Yeah. Thomas says that it's typical that McGee, like, flipped out. Yeah. And Carson disagrees. I also disagree. McGee yeah. very rarely. McGee, she of the infinite patience for Baxter's fuck nuttery. <laughs> yeah. Daisy decides that this situation calls for her input. <laughs> so she announces how grateful she is for what McGee is doing for Mr. Mason's farm. Mr. Mosley's like, that's not settled. And Daisy's like, I want it to get settled. And uh, Thomas says, don't we all? I don't know, man. Yeah, Carson know says Thomas seems disenchanted. Thomas says it's because he can't see the future. I would also say, Carson, you've worked very hard to disenchant <laughs> Yeah. Like, I don't know why you're suddenly now acting like his behavior is a mystery to you. I hate you. What seems to be the trouble? <laughs> In Hughes' parlor, Patmore says, tells Hughes not to let it upset her, but Hughes is upset. It's her whole job. Yeah. And she, you know, has been... A Helen Mirren-style perfect servant mm-hmm. up to this point. That's right. Hugh says that she's going up, but then there's a knock and McGee enters. And McGee says that she behaved badly and apologizes. Hughes accepts, and McGee says that she was angry about something else and she let it cloud her judgment. And Hughes is like, oh, well, you know, it must have looked very odd. <sighs> Patmore says that they've all let things cloud their judgment, and McGee gives Hughes the coat, and they're British about it, and then Hughes accepts, and Baxter will fit it for her overnight. Uh, good for Baxter. Yeah. We do see Carson packing his suitcase. Baxter is sewing and Mrs. Hughes getting into bed. We see some guy cutting flowers, taking them to the servant's entrance for Mr. Carson. Mrs. Hughes lies in bed looking at her outfit and Mrs. Patmore comes in with tea and Anna and Baxter come to dress the bride. And God damn it if I'm not getting all emotional and worked up because, man, yeah. I love Mrs. Hughes. I know. We all love Mrs. Hughes. Carson paces in the Carson cave, checks again that he has the ring in his pocket. Um, Mosley brings in the flowers, and Carson is confused, and uh, realizes that he doesn't have ushers. So he's like, uh, Andy and Mosley. And then Thomas is there, and he's like, uh, hello? And Carson is like, oh, fine, you too. Usually Andy is the one who's also there. <laughs> right. At the church, uh, Mrs. Hughes and Carson recite their vows with everyone looking on. Bagpipes play them out because Mrs. Hughes is Scottish. Mm-hmm. 
And they're preceded by two random, <laughs> nearly identical looking children who hand Mrs. Hughes flowers as she's walking out. And they're like, come play with us, Houston, forever and ever, but mostly just until the reception. <laughs> Isabel stops Dr. Clarkson and apologizes for her words the other day, but she was exasperated by the Dowager Countess, who can hear them. Yeah, she's right there. They're all acting like children. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Clarkson says maybe Isabel was right. The Dowager says, what, what, what? <laughs> and Isabel says Dr. Clarkson is reviewing <laughs> his position. That didn't rhyme the way that I thought it would. Yeah, but it was close. Oh, thanks. We got the reference. The Dowager Countess hopes that it's wishful thinking, and Dr. Clarkson doesn't know. Doc- Dr. Countess. <laughs> Dr. Countess. <laughs> this fall on ITV. She's going up against her most dangerous foe yet. The Duchess. <laughs> the Dowager says that second thoughts are vastly overrated, and Clarkson says that uh, Murty agrees. And the Dowager Countess, he means that Murty agrees yeah, that yeah, they yeah. should go with the York plan, not that second thoughts are overrated. Right. Because uh, really, second thoughts are Murty's only shot with Isabel. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, I jolly well like second thoughts. <laughs> Murty is like a non-comedic version of a Hugh Laurie character. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The Dowager says that a peer in favor of reform is like a turkey in favor of Christmas, which fuck you. Everybody <laughs> loves Christmas. <laughs> I'm not sure turkeys do. I don't think they know when it is, man. No, you're that. So they get killed that day or they get killed a different day. That's a good point. I've seen that episode of South Park. <laughs> At the reception, Carson and Hughes are in their receiving line greeting everybody. Uh, and McGee says something about how Mrs. Carson may not agree with her with him about something and it's just how they're all be like mrs carson i cannot make those words with my mouth mostly just short circuits <laughs> mary apologizes for making things awkward before and hughes says that carson would forgive mary for attacking him with a brick sweet backhanded burn mrs hughes yeah and uh Danker's also there. Thank God. I was concerned she wouldn't be invited. Yeah. You know they talked about it too. They were like, oh, do we really have to? <laughs> and she takes this opportunity to dank at Spratt about his nephew. Like, we needed that in this scene. Bates tells Anna she's sunny and she says she likes weddings and asks if she'd tell him if she'd fallen in love with somebody else. I hate this. Yeah. What, why would you even say that? Like, right. you're just happy. Because I, he's a creepy, controlling, bad person. That's why. He didn't used to be. I know. Anna says she shouldn't think so, and Bates says there's something about her, and Anna says there's something about him. Go to couples counseling already. <laughs> here, here. And I don't ever really say that. I'm only saying that for Anna's benefit, because usually I'm like, oh, you're thinking about couples counseling? Probably just get divorced. <laughs> like, go to counseling if you have to co-parent children. But otherwise, like, if you can't work it out between the two of you, yeah. I don't really see... Ah, People will disagree with me, right. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couples counselors keep existing. <laughs> but so do diet plans, and those don't work anyway. I mostly tells the school teacher that he thinks that Daisy will do him credit, and he says that she'll do Mosley credit. And he asks if Mosley may have missed his vocation, and Mosley says that he's missed everything. That is true. Yeah. Daisy tells McGee that Mason is grateful, and he agrees, and she again tries to correct their misapprehension, but then Carson calls for silence. 
He says that he's the happiest and luckiest of men, and he toasts to the bride. And Lord Grantham says to the bride and groom, and all agree. Way to make it all about you, Lord Grantham. <laughs> well, right. But man, this wedding was nice. You yeah. know, it was, there was only minor little hiccups about the dress and where it would be. And we kind of skipped over the ceremony because there wasn't much to say, but they were very cute together. Yeah. All this sort of thing. So it's all just a very happy. Oh! <laughs> you thought it was over. You thought we were safe. I did. You thought it was just a nice episode. <laughs> nice things happened to nice people except for Thomas. You were wrong. Bitch. I was wrong. Because guess who's back? <laughs> Branson pokes his fat fucking face into the doorway. And he's like, hey, everybody, I'm here. No, and it, that's how it, he's like, he's like, oh, hi. Like, it's so like Cousin Oliver. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's really awful. Um, I mean, Sibby is still cute. That's the best I can say for it. Uh, and Hughes is like, oh, are you back for a holiday, you weirdo? <laughs> Branson says that he can stay for as long as they want him. And they're like, so are you leaving? Well, I guess it's good that Mary did wait to write in that letter. <laughs> I guess so. Would have just been a waste of a stamp? <laughs> <laughs> Edith, like all of us, doesn't understand. Uh, but Branson says he wants to stay for good. And everybody's happy about this. Uh, there's also this random shot of a servant picking up George in the middle of all this, which is just, I guess the nanny's there. Uh, Branson says that he had to go all the way to Boston to figure out the Downtons' home and that there is family. Uh, somewhere a bunch of Irish guys are getting shot to death, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. I, uh, I would like to hold out hope it's that- It's in Ireland. <laughs> That's where they're getting shot to death. Yes. By, uh, friends of Lord Grantham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'd like to think that the real reason is going to turn out to be, like, that he killed somebody in Boston and is on the run from, like, the proto-mafia, but I'm guessing that that's not Probably it. not. Yeah. And we see George and Marigold hug Sibby. So why, in God's name, did we have that entire plot line last season? Why? What's the opposite of narrative economy? <laughs> narrative profligacy? I guess so. Like It is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Like, if you knew you weren't going to fire Alan Leach... Why bother? Yeah. What was that? Like, for him to be only be gone in two episodes? Uh-huh. What? Yep. You guys should see Tom's face right now. <laughs> I'm really upset. I know you are. I, I can see your face. <laughs> That's right. You're the only one. I know. Yeah. I uh, No, this really, really bothered me. And that's all I can say about it. I just, I really hate that he's back. I, I mean, I suppose it's possible that there's a reason for his return that I could be okay with, but there's no reason given at all. It's yeah, just he like, was just, yeah, he's like, oh, it turned out I didn't like Boston as much as being a British lord. <laughs> so stupid. Like, no, ser- I mean, honestly, think about it. So you go from living there to Boston to live with your, you know, Mick cousin. Yeah. And presumably no nanny. Mm-hmm. And trying to like build up some business where like it matters if yeah. you fail or succeed. Right. I'm sure it still matters to his cousin. Uh, well, we never met him, did we? No, I guess we didn't. We sure didn't. Remember his brother? Oh, yeah. That was a good time. I'd forgotten about him. Oh, the boat times. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway. And then they come back and be like, uh, yeah, I didn't write in advance. I was just hoping I could live with you forever. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point of a great house? Yeah, that's true. Well, All this right. brings us to the Abbey Awards. Mm-hmm. Worst decision goes to... Uh, McGee for yelling at Hughes. Yeah. We love McGee and we love Mrs. Hughes. 
This was an egregious abuse of our trust in you, McGee. That's right. We expect you as an American to hold yourself to a higher standard. Yeah, come on. It's Hughes. Yeah, come on. She Hughes. would never do anything wrong on purpose. Yeah. If she didn't think it was fine, she wouldn't be in there. Yeah. You should have known this was Mary's fault. Yeah. <laughs> She's your worst child. <laughs> Next up, we have best evasion. Uh, Sprat. Yeah. For, you know, successfully concealing his on-the-lam nephew from the cops. Yeah, that's true. That's, uh, you know, that's a skill. That's yeah. a real skill, and we respect it. Here, here. Presumably, he's also hiding his best stamps from Danger. <laughs> he better be. Yeah. You know, he was doing it before it became a rage. <laughs> Worst overbite goes to... Uh, Sir Michael Rarebit. Yeah, Rarebit. Man, he was snobby. He was. No, it was ridiculous. And yeah. like, it all started off so innocently. Yeah, it did. He just had, you know, a bare bone staff, but then, whoa. Yeah. Look out. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. Which goes to Mrs. Hughes. Yes. For looking very, very lovely against all odds <laughs> on her wedding day. That's right. No, she had a nice belt on the dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, McGee's coat looked very lovely. She had a nice hat. Good flowers. Yeah, it all came very together. Pretty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion goes to... Mrs. Hughes. For her brown day dress uh, and also that dress before it got all, <laughs> you know, pit my ride. Right. Yeah. So a, a very rare double win. Yes. Probably unique. I doubt we'll repeat this. So. Yeah, but we love Mrs. Hughes. We do love Mrs. Hughes. In case you guys didn't know. <laughs> Next, we have the Cutest Baby Award. So this one we're giving in a tie to George and Marigold because now that Sibby's back, she's just going to win every week because <laughs> she is way cuter than those two. Yeah. So and Marigold even looked kind of not hideous this week. Yeah, that's true. Like, and they, you know, and they hugged Sibby at the end. They had a little moment. Um, but, but now it's just all sailor suits and alien face from here on out. <laughs> yeah. So we, we wanted to give them the one last hurrah before the <gasps> inevitable reign of Sibby. Okay. I know you're mad, but you know what this means is that Donk is back now. That is a good point. Yep. We do all like Donk. Cause apparently George and Marigold can't speak. Uh, or... Marigold can say moo. <laughs> That's not a word. <laughs> it isn't cow. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. This week we award her two. Uh, same as last week. Uh, pretty similar situation, really. Not a ton to do. And what there was wasn't her best work. No. Or her like, best character moments. Yeah. I feel like she had one good thing somewhere the in there. The one good thing was a thing about drinking at luncheon. Yeah. But that like, was... everything else just felt like, you know, Dowager Bot 5000. Yeah. Yeah. It just felt very forced and, you know bit disappointing so still... hopefully she'll be back on form next week yeah still plenty next of time week, very intriguing uh in the uh you know scenes from next right week, right so yeah curious mm-hmm. want to see what happens <laughs> that's right so until next time up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs luncheon out